Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 312 and part two of my conversation with New York City-based freelance percussionist and educator, Colleen Bernstein. Once more, we join Marching Mizzou in action. Well, technically, Mini-Mizzou, as a group of about 50 students, along with a couple of directors, traveled for the first time in Mizzou's history to play at Auburn University in Alabama for a football game. And this was Auburn's homecoming. We made the trip through eight hours of bus travel to Tupelo, Mississippi, then four hours from Tupelo to Auburn that morning for the game, then another four hours back from Auburn back to Tupelo to the hotel, and then another eight hours on Sunday to get back home. So that was the travel. But anyway, if you know college football and are familiar with what happened at the Mizzou-Auburn game, you know what happened next. Auburn get out to a quick lead. Mizzou trudged their way back and tied the game just before halftime. What followed was an entire half of pretty much uninspired football by both sides with no scoring until Mizzou connected on a long pass to the three-yard line with about a minute or so left. The Mizzou fans, a small but loud and supportive group, exploded with delight. And we all thought, we're actually going to win this game. It's going to happen. Alas, our kicker, who hadn't missed a field goal inside of 30 yards for his entire career, did just that at the end of regulation. Then, our defense was offside on Auburn's first field goal attempt in OT on a kick that was missed, allowing them a chance to redo the kick and having it be made the second time. Finally, on our offensive possession in overtime, our running back made a great outside move and was running into the end zone when, as he reached the ball out to cross the goal line and give us the win, the ball slipped out of his hands. Auburn, previously expecting a loss, exploded with delight when their defender landed on the fumble in the end zone. Game over. Mizzou loses. <sighs> the good news is the pep band played great. They were constantly upbeat and active the whole game and received a lot of compliments throughout, particularly from the Auburn fans. And it was a very hot game. Very hot. But we survived and we played Georgia Oh, this weekend. Oh, boy. They're number one. Okay. All right. Anyway, uh, let's return to our conversation with Colleen Bernstein. Last week, we released part one, which I hope you caught. And you heard about Colleen's goings-on in New York City and getting settled into her freelance career there, her time in youth orchestra, and her undergrad years at Eastman. This week in part two, we'll hear about Colleen's time at the University of Michigan getting into the freelancing scene in Detroit and then New York, and finally our usual close with segments on women in percussion, a long discussion of New York sports fandom between the two of us, and her excitement at playing in the pit for Phantom of the Opera. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on September 16th, 2022, and it begins right now. You head to Michigan after, right? Yeah. 
Yes. Now, so, so yeah, when I was at Eastman, I did my, I did uh, both performance and music education degrees. Mm. So I had an extra semester where I was doing my student teaching. Um, Eastman has a, a really great program for that. If you're double majoring, you can do this ninth semester tuition free where you mm. just student teach and you get to just focus on that, which is awesome. So yeah, I had a little bit of extra time after I finished um, my the degree part of it. And then I, uh, yeah, I went up to Michigan for my master's. Were you at all considering go doing some teaching before you go to your master's or were you ready to jump into the master's? I pretty much was ready to, to jump in. I mean, I knew that in New York, you have to have a master's uh, within five years of your initial teacher certification anyway to actually keep your certification. So yeah, I, that was a, that was a piece of it. And I just felt like I just wanted to keep going. And um, I always knew that I wanted to work for a while after my master's before any consideration of doing a doctorate or anything like that. But yeah, I was pretty set on just going and going right in and doing it. What was your first indication you're no longer in New York? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it definitely is a different, it's definitely a different feel in the Midwest for sure. And in, in Michigan specifically, I, there's not really one thing that was sticking out like as, as a moment for me that I really felt that like immediately, but I mean, the whole, the whole thing was kind of just like a new culture, a new space because you have suddenly on a enormous, you know, university campus and very different from the Eastman um, vibe, which is like two blocks primarily, you know, (laughs) and a very small community. And, you you know, you get to know most people pretty well, um, at least in your year and, you know, and then you're at Michigan, it's a whole different thing. So, yeah, I mean, it was, and I, I wanted that. I kind of wanted to have that um, balance and that, you know, the, the contrast. Um, but it definitely, it definitely felt that a lot, you know, that, that it was just a different environment overall. And that's, you know, it was a good thing and it was a challenge in some ways. And um, I think that's what I, what I wanted in that regard. Who did you end up studying with when you were there? I, I studied with Joe Gramley primarily, uh, and that he was the reason that I was interested in that program and uh, ultimately wanted to go out there. So, yeah, for the most part, I studied with him. He was on leave for a semester, so I ended up studying with Professor Oval for a little bit. And uh, some of the folks who came in, there was like a rotation of people who came in to uh, take Joe's spot when he was out. So I studied with a few of them as well, Doug Perkins and Haruka Fuji, uh, primarily. Got it. Um, compare or c- compare contrast studying with Mike Burrett versus Joe Gramley. Yeah, very different teachers. Um, I, I enjoyed working with both of them. Uh, I learned a lot and I learned different things from them, which again, is something I, I was really looking for in my master's program. Something that would be a little different from Burrett. Well, Burrett is, like I said, he's so high energy and he's very, he's just very fast with everything. So he just kind of, he just throws a lot of stuff at you and he'll, you know, whether that's in lessons or rehearsals or just the general kind of the way the studio is running, it's just like there's a lot of stuff happening and you kind of, you just have to strap in and, and go for it. Joe is like equally deep, but it's, you know, like, I guess more of like a, like he, he's definitely a little bit more thoughtful with 
what he's going to tell you in a lesson. And I don't mean that as like a, a criticism of Bert at all, that he's not sure. thoughtful. It's just that he, he's just like so quick with everything that it, you know, there's not really a moment where he's like thinking about it before he presents it to you. And, you know, Joe would, I think would kind of prepare that a little bit more, like how he wanted to present his ideas to you um, or how he wanted to work through something with you. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. And I, I don't mean that to sound like good or bad for either one. It's just, it's just the difference. Um, but Joe would talk a lot about really specific, like minuscule details of technique or the way that an instrument works, you know, as far as projection or just balancing across the range of a vibraphone, for example, or like he was really, really detailed about that kind of stuff, which was awesome. Um, he would, he would just really get in there. I'd like be like, yeah, the fifth note of that sextuplet doesn't speak as well because, you know, it's your play, it's played on this part of the instrument or because it's not balancing because this tom-tom is ringing and, you know, stuff like that, um, which was great. Just like extremely detailed and, and technical and a lot of attention to that. But I think like I was mentioning with Barrett, that the sort of the theme of communicating and having a clear vision was something that I got from both of them, you know, and, and in different ways, but, but that, that kind of conversation um, continued with, with Joe, when I was doing my master's, it was like, he's, he was asking a lot of kind of questions more broadly about like, what did, you know, what do you want to say as an artist? And if you're approaching this from like an artist perspective, as opposed to just a, a percussionist who can play the music perspective, like, what are you trying to do? Or why are you even playing this piece? You know, things like that. So that was really great. And I think that's something he does really well, especially with his grad students is tries to help, you know, um, as you're in this like new phase of your moving into your career, like he's, he really tries to help you kind of figure that out. And he's very supportive of whichever way people want to go. Yeah. I guess that's a, a little bit of an insight to both of them. Kind of everything is like at the surface, ready to come out of Mike. It sounds like, <laughs> so like whatever's there, he's like, he's ready, 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 ready. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great thing. It's like you go into the lesson and, you know, you, you're, you just, you don't ever know exactly which way it's going to go, you know, um, because it could, yeah, I mean, it, it could go in a lot of ways and all of them would be, you know, helpful, but it, it just could be a lot of different things. And um, yeah, I mean, with, with Joe, it was, yeah, it was more like, and he would also give you a little bit more I think this is partially just because I was grad student versus undergrad, but, but Joe was, like I said, he was very open to, well, what do you want to do? What pieces are you going to bring in and sort of going from there? Whereas, you know, Burrett would do that, but he also had a lot of suggestions. Well, I think you need to work on this. I think you need to have, you know, one of these pieces you need to, you know, you haven't done a piece like this, you should do this, stuff like that. So there was a little bit more flexibility in what I was bringing into the lessons with Joe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think that was primarily more that I was a, a master's student versus an undergrad. Did you have an assistantship? Yes. Yeah. Graduate student instructors is what they call them in Michigan. So you're a GSI. Um, but yeah, it's an assistantship. There's a few of them in the percussion program. And I had the one that was basically focused on teaching and, and mostly involved teaching the percussion methods class um, to the music ed students who were not percussion majors. So um, I got to teach that for all four semesters that I was there. Um, and that was great because it wasn't a TA position where you were working with a professor and just sort of doing the grunt work. It was like fully your class and you could basically do what, what you wanted with it. Um, 
so I had the experience of, of writing a syllabus and creating all the course content and, you know, planning the semester. And we met a lot. I mean, my methods classes at Eastman, typically we met once a week. Sometimes it was twice a week, um, but typically like most of them were just once a week. Um, but I had at Michigan, my percussion methods students, I saw them three hours a week. I saw them Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays um, for an hour each time, which was you know, like kind of amazing. That's, that's a lot of time for a methods class. Um, but it was great, you know, cause I got to really um, dig in and do some really interesting things with the students. Yeah. You can, you could almost cover a lot of the percussion <laughs> world. Almost cover a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, um, what, one of my favorite things that I did was, um, I kind of in incorporated a percussion ensemble component where towards the end of the semester, they all had to make um, an arrangement or do an original composition or something for like a beginner level percussion ensemble. And then we would play them in class and use those as like a springboard to just talk about all the techniques that we had covered. You know, they would write for obviously instruments that we had touched upon since th those were what they knew about. At that point, the, the hope was they all had enough skills that we could like play the pieces. And um, that was really great because it brought in a lot of creativity to the class and it, and it really provided a, a great way to like talk very practically about either issues with writing for percussion or, you know, for ensemble playing or and like things like that, that um, I could have sort of lectured about, but this was a really practical way to, um, to like point to examples. That was fun, but it definitely wouldn't have happened if we had like only, you know, one hour a week or something like that. Sure. I hope none of them came in and were like, okay, this is for four octaves of Alma Glocken. No, I mean, I think I had some like restrictions there. <laughs> I think, um, I don't remember what I said, but yeah, I mean, it was, but I also said like, you know, beginning percussion ensemble, this yeah. has to be like something you could literally take with you to your student teaching and do with your students if you're in that kind of setting, you know? So That's yeah, it was, it was, you know, some mallet instruments and, snare drum and wood block and you know that kind of stuff um which is great oh that's a great idea i like that i like yeah. that what was the what was the ensemble experience like there percussion ensemble and also were you um, doing were you required to be in any of the large ensembles while you're there yes yeah i had to be in the large ensembles each semester um and i was in uh the symphony band for my first semester and then the rest of the time i was in the orchestra but as far as the percussion ensemble, um, it kind of changed every semester the way that it worked. Um, and that was because it kind of went back and forth between Joe and Jonathan Oval, um, as far as like who was in charge of it. And they each had their own approach to like the way that the rehearsals were going to run or, you know, like it's so that the structure changed, whereas at Eastman, it was like very, um, even as I mentioned with like the younger students to the older students, it was very consistent, like the expectations and the rehearsal schedule to an extent like there were always extra rehearsals but the general um yeah the general way that it worked and you knew what to expect the whole time that was it that was very consistent at Eastman and it was just different at Michigan they they kind of changed and tried a lot of different things each semester um so yeah it, it was just like a it was a very different experience for sure and it wasn't um it it wasn't quite as intense in the way that Eastman's percussion ensemble is is like I mentioned, just a really big part of the studio. Um, I think it wasn't as big of a part of the studio and a lot of the students didn't see it as, you know, essential in the way that 
people at Eastman saw it as essential. So that has a big impact on the whole uh, experience. Yeah. But I mean, I, I still got to play a lot of great rep and um, we, I also played with the, uh, they called it contemporary directions ensemble, which was like their mixed new music ensemble. Um, I played, I think every semester in that group as well. And so um, that was great. I got to play a lot of really cool uh, rep. We played some George Crumb. We played some Augusta Reed Thomas kind of larger scale works um, and a lot of other, you know, great stuff in there too. So I really enjoyed doing that. I also got to play a uh, soldier's tale, I think nice. with that group at the end. Yeah. So that was great too. I hadn't, you know, ever played that. So that was really fun. Because you are doing a master's and when you're finishing that up, are you looking anywhere specifically? Do you, is it, is it that you like, I'm planning to go back to New York after that? What was the kind of the thought after your master's is, or while you're wrapping it up? As I mentioned earlier, like I, I was planning on being out in the field doing some kind of work for at least a few years before I wanted to think about, you know, and I, I don't know yet whether the doctorate was going to happen or not, but I always knew like it's not going to be right away. So yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about that really at all because I, I didn't want to do that at the time. I wanted to go and get some experience. Yeah, I was, I, I was pretty confident that I wanted to, um, I wasn't planning on like being in Michigan for a long term or anything like that, you know? Um, so I was pretty confident that I wanted to be in a big city somewhere. Um, and I started thinking about New York versus Boston. Those were sort of the two places that I was really focused on once I started really looking or really thinking about it. Um, but I think I, at, at some point was sort of looking into Chicago as well, or, you know, um, places where there were interesting new music things happening and where I knew people and, um, but yeah, it ended up being a kind of really between New York and Boston in my head. And ultimately I, I ended up deciding I wanted to, you know, be in New York. I actually did stay in Michigan a little bit longer than I was anticipating. Um, Cause I was planning to come to New York, like right after graduation initially, you know, once I, once I made that decision, it was like, okay, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to move to New York in the summer and, you know, be in New York starting in the fall. That was the intent. I actually came here and interviewed and got a teaching position um, in New York that it was, a like a four days a week kind of thing, uh, teaching, you know, position that was hoping to have that and sort of freelance around it. And so I was really excited about that, but I, I ended up just for a variety of reasons. Like I, I just kind of realized I wanted to have a little more time to work on some of the projects I had going on towards the end of my time at Michigan. And I had the sense that like, if I moved right to New York, I would get, kind of swallowed up in the stuff that's happening in New York. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to do when I got here. But I had the sense that like that was going to compete with the, these other projects I wanted to spend a little time doing and some of my solo projects and things like that. After like a lot of soul searching and um, even though I had been offered this teaching job, I ended up deciding I was going to stay in Michigan. And um, I, I left Ann Arbor and moved uh, closer to Detroit and that was just sort of a base. Um, and my plan was just basically like, I'm going to do this for six or seven months or not even a full year, but I just want to have a little time to, to get some of these things done that I'm interested in. So I, I sort of used that as a base and I freelanced from there. And, and then my plan was in the spring to go to New York, uh, which I did. And then uh, COVID hit. So um, that's how it worked. But that, that was my, I guess, does that, I don't know if that even answers your question, but yeah. Um, that was sort of my process. Yeah. Yeah. 
what kinds of things were you finishing up or you had gotten started and realized you needed more time to do? Um, well, I started working on this project um, that I called Strength and Sensitivity when I was at Michigan. Um, and it's a, it's a contemporary music and gender equality um, project. And I just was really interested in kind of developing that further. It was something that um, initially I thought was just going to be like one concert that I was sort of just going to organize and put together. And um, the concert went really well. And, and a lot of people were really encouraging me to, to like keep growing the project. And um, so the second year of my master's, I spent a lot of time doing that and really trying to see where that would go. So that was one of the things that I, I wanted to put a little bit of time into. But I also just had some interest in like going and doing some classes at universities and maybe doing some solo recitals around or just different collaborations with, you know, friends and, and things like that. And I had a few freelance um, like regional orchestras that I was playing with by the time I graduated in that area. So it, it was kind of like, okay, well, maybe I can piece together something right now, or I can, you know, play in some ensembles here in Michigan. And um, this is kind of a good, it's a good base to be able to travel. You know, it was easy to like to, to get to the airport. It was easy to drive to a lot of places and, you know, it's not quite as expensive as like living in New York and doing that kind of stuff. You know, I was able to have like a big room in my apartment with all my gear and just practice space there. And so I just decided I wanted to try that out for a little bit. Um, and I also at the, at that time was working like remotely, but part-time for a record label. So mm. I had this kind of part-time work that I was doing as well. Yeah. So I just, I just felt like, let me, let me just kind of piece together and, and see what the freelance experience is like here and, and then kind of transfer and move it into New York instead of just diving in and sort of being in such an intense place which, where, you know, New York is, um, it's very intense place. It's a tough place to live. You know, it's a great place to live, but also hard. I think, I think my instinct was right. I don't think I would have had the, any time or energy to um, look into any of that stuff if I had just come straight here. Oh, that's awesome. It's interesting that, that you kind of phrased it as before, before I, you answered that last question, kind of as I knew once I come to New York that I'm going to kind of be very involved like to the point where I can't make it both work. Like you saw, you, you knew well, that was, or so, sorry, go ahead. My sense and what I had heard from people about like moving to New York or moving to a big city and freelancing was that, you know, like all of it, like it's going to take a long time to, to really kind of build up the sustainable career. And, and at the beginning, there's a lot of, um, you know, really important work of just making the connections with people and, um, you know, just trying to like look for all the different opportunities that you can and like it, you know, just being able to say yes to things and being able to, um, yeah. So I just, I knew that like, I knew that when I got here, I wanted to have the attention, like the ability to do that so that I could hopefully, you know, get involved in some things. Um, and I think, yeah, at the time, like a couple of years ago, I just felt like that, plus the momentum I had going with these other projects was just not going to really sync up for at least that period of time. It's not that it couldn't have happened later, but yeah, that was just, I don't know. That was my sense about it. Just that was just based on really like what I had heard from people about coming to New York and or coming, you know, going anywhere and like setting up a freelance career. So, yeah. I heard the, the car alarm. It was kind of fun. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's just, just a, <laughs> Somebody, I don't, know, I don't know, on the street. 
as one does. Um, it's New York. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's, Very true. Yeah. Did you like living in Detroit? Yeah, I actually live technically in Dearborn, which is a, a suburb of Detroit. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, had a really nice um, apartment there. I was like in a nice little area, very quiet and peaceful, um, which is great. And, you know, it was different from Ann Arbor, which has the obviously big college town feel. And yeah. this was more in, like, yeah, it didn't have that same feel. So, um, yeah, I did, I did like it. I, maybe you could afford to live in Detroit area versus, uh, Ann Arbor, which I've heard is expensive. <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. I mean, I had, like, as I mentioned, I had a big studio room in, in the apartment, which was great. I didn't have to like look for a separate place to, to practice or anything like that. And that was also one of the big considerations, like moving to New York was, well, what am I going to do about that? I'm not affiliated with the school anymore. And, you know, I, I really like, it was great to just have that, um, figured out right away being in Michigan. Like I was just like, Oh, I can just get, you know, the rent is such here that I can just get an extra room basically and just have space for my gear and, um, I can do recordings and things like that. It was really nice. Um, but yeah, I really liked going to the Eastern market in Detroit. It's like the, the giant, um, basically farmer's market. That was like my, probably my favorite thing about Detroit. Did you overlap with Nicole Patrick? So I, I actually know Nicole from, uh, back in high school, we both did the Juilliard summer percussion seminar together. Oh, okay. the summer thing. Um, so we actually met through that. And then, um, we, yeah, we were not in the studio at the same time in Michigan, but we connected again, like out, out there. And yeah, Nicole's awesome. Yeah. I, cause I was like, this sounds like Nicole. Cause I had Nicole on some point uh-huh. and, yeah. and she, what she did the Detroit thing. She did New York city. She had to leave. Like it was like, <laughs> there's was, there was like all these paths where it's kind of the same. Yeah. It's kind of, I was like, I feel like I should just ask just to make sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Nicole's great. Yeah. She's, uh, she's crushing it right now on the, on the uh, tour that she's on. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I finish up with a segment called random ask questions. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So first question is what's an issue in either percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I mean, from an educator perspective, like it's obviously it's so hard to, to, you know, master or get, come anywhere close to mastering all the different instruments. Like if you're going to be a band teacher, but, and then having taught the percussion methods class, um, and actually I'm still teaching, I'm teaching that class at William Patterson university now. So, um, and I, you know, had some experience in two different schools now doing it. And it's, um, so I guess just thinking in, in that lens, like it's so important that people really understand like large scale principles about percussion and, and, how the instruments work and mm-hmm. all the things that you can transfer from one to another, you know, so that even if you didn't really study bass drum in your methods class, like, I guess, you know, it would be great if people had more understanding, like if educators who are not percussionists had more understanding of like just the basic principles of how our instruments work and how our like motion works to play the instruments that you could transfer to, to other instruments, you know? Um, because in my experience, just observing various teachers or working with different teachers or um, hearing stories about teachers from, you know, other people, 
like you just, you hear so frequently that it's like, yeah, I mean, they know how to teach snare drum, but you know, any of the other like battery instruments or like cymbals, like there's never any attention about how to play correct crash cymbals or how to play correct like tambourine. Right. And, and so then you end up like observing, you know, band rehearsals and you see kids like playing with no sense of how to play the instruments and that, you know, it's like, and on the one hand, it's very understandable because you have these methods classes that are um, usually not that frequent, or, you know, even if they are, it's like one semester and that might be your freshman year. And then you never think about it again for yeah. seven years before you get a job or who knows, you know? Sure. So it's like very understandable, but on the other hand, it's, it's definitely frustrating because uh, I think it tends to lead to, to students, not necessarily like understanding the, the instruments in a, in their fullest extent, you know, like, and it leads to those attitudes of like, oh, these instruments are not as important or they're not real instruments even, or like things like that. And so it's, I think it's really important for educators to understand like the, what the instruments are and all the history that comes with them and things like that, as well as just having like enough sense of, you know, basic principles of how to play percussion that, that they can kind of transfer um, so that's like, I don't know if that really answers the question, but, um, I, yeah, I'm always just kind of sad when I see like young percussion students in middle school or high school band who just have, like, just don't have, it's not their fault, you know, but they just like, don't have a sense of like how to play the instruments or that there even is a right way, you know, yeah. just the sense that it's, it's like, there is actually a correct way to play a tambourine depending on your context of music. Right. And there is a right way to play the cymbals. It's going to get a better sound than a different way that you, if you just smash them together versus if you, you try to do like these three things, you know, all of a sudden the sound is like a hundred times better, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I, yeah, I wish that like percussion students had, you know, the support to like really understand that kind of stuff at a young age. I agree. And it's, it's always, I, and you know this because of you, of your education degree and uh, previous stuff, but, but like the amount of stuff that the band director has to know is, is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and then I, you know, and then from the other side of it, like I also had a band director job last yeah. year. And yeah. so I had to, you know, I had to check myself on, you know, all my other instruments for me, which, you know, um, it's like not saying that I'm, an expert at any of them. I'm certainly not, you know, but, but I, I did spend a lot of time just trying to think about the, the, again, the things that would transfer from one to another. And that makes a huge difference because you're, you're not necessarily going to know every single detail, but if you have a, a, an understanding of the principles of why something is the way that it is like with embouchure or with, you know, um, articulation or something like that for a wind or brass instrument, you can transfer those things. Yeah. So I think it's important to just like put that in the context of percussion and, and transferring to other percussion instruments. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Next question. Take this wherever you want to go. Um, being a percussionist who is also a woman floor is yours. <laughs> I just see it as I'm a percussionist, you know, mm -hmm. um, you asked me or like earlier in the, you know, in our previous session about something kind of to the similar effect, um, and you talked about how it's still definitely a male dominated space. Um, and that's definitely true. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, uh, I'm just trying to be the best musician I can be, best percussionist I can be. Um, I'm really excited for 
um, any projects I see out there where people are actively trying to make space for, you know, everybody in the community and people who are really trying to, um, even more specifically than that, like lift up people who have been left out. Um, and that's women and it's, you know, non-binary folks and it extends way beyond that into various other, you know, um, factors of, of identity and things like that. So I'm not just saying it as far as women, but I, I guess, yeah, that's, um, Anytime I see people doing that kind of work, um, I'm really excited about that. And that can look like a lot of different things. But yeah, I guess I hope that that's like, you know, a priority for um, as many of us out there as, as it can be, because uh, we definitely have some barriers we have to overcome, you know, in, in our field and music industry in general. And it's going to take a lot of effort from a lot of people. So um yeah, I just am like on the lookout for people who are doing that kind of work and I want to support that however I can and, and be a part of it, you know, when there's a chance. So just trying to be the best, um, you know, community member that I can. And, and um, sorry, I feel like I'm not really, I don't know if I'm giving you a, a good answer here, but no, that's, yeah. No, it's, it's your answer. It's, it's been, a, it's been a, it's been a different, I guess I'll say like, it's been, more of a factor at different times in my life or different places I've been At some places it hasn't been something that has seemed to be like a really present challenge, I guess, in, in navigating a space that's not, you know, gender equal. Um, but in other times it, you know, like it hasn't felt like that. And other times it has been really, really prevalent and has been a huge challenge, like in very visceral ways. So yeah, I mean, it, it can it can be very present or not so much, and that you know that depends on on the situation. But I think you know it's a, it's an overreaching thing. It doesn't it doesn't exist in just one part of the percussion world or one part of the music industry. It's like very very broad. So um, even if it's something that you don't necessarily see, not you specifically, but people, mm -hmm. you know, that you don't necessarily see like right in your immediate environment, it's important to remember like it does still exist. You know. And uh, yeah, I think for anybody who is experiencing anything having to do with a gender bias or whatever, like it's really important that we, you know, listen to those folks and believe what they're saying, you know, um, again, like even if it's not something that you particularly experience, you know, so yeah, I guess that's my, my thought on it for right now. All right, great. Okay, other questions, not not as not as serious. Um, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, that's, um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like related to what we were talking about before, like Burrett would do an impression of me sometimes, oh, I guess, you know, <laughs> but just, but not like, not in a, I don't know, like in the sense that he was trying to kind of show what we were, what we were talking about with the sort of the more mellow thing, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's like, he wouldn't be like, Oh, I'm doing my Colleen impression. Sure. I understand. Um, so yeah, I don't know if anybody's like ever done that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Or if they have, <laughs> I wasn't, aware, I wasn't aware of it, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I got you on that. Yeah. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? I think it's at my parents' house, but for some reason I have one of those, um, you know, those like rainbow colored hat, like multicolored hats that have the little propeller. 
it's not it's like a cap but it has like the little <laughs> it has yeah. like a little propeller i don't know why i have that i don't know how it ended up in my possession i don't think i've ever worn it for anything but it is in my closet so <laughs> <laughs> um interesting i guess yeah that that would be yeah um it, yeah, I, I could not tell you at all. I have no clue where it came from, but and I don't. But I've, I kept it. Like I haven't given it away or something. So, um, <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> awesome. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Great movie. I I really love the movie Miracle um, about the U.S. hockey team, the oh, yeah. Olympic team. That's a good one. Yeah, I I love that movie. Um, and I'm not like a hockey fan. Like mm-hmm. I actually know almost nothing about hockey, but uh, I'm a sports fan in general. Just, I, you know, my, I don't know. My family was never really into hockey. So, sure. um, but I, I totally, I totally love that movie. I think it's like a really well-told story and I mean, it's a, it's a really awesome story in general, just, you know, um, but yeah. So that one, um, I, I go back and like rewatch that every so often and, you know, it's always very like motivating and inspiring. That's great. Nice. Um, yeah. As far as like a, a terrible one, I don't know if I have a specific terrible movie, but I am not particularly a fan of horror movies mm. um, or anything like that. So yeah, I just kind of stay away from that kind of stuff. I, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, went to like a friend's house in high school and, you know, we, we watched, I think it was like paranormal activity or something like that. And, you know, that was the last one that I was like, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. I don't need to do this anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's just like, not my, it's not my thing, you know, <laughs> I don't need this um, in my life with me anymore. too much. Yeah. yeah. It just like, it, it just, you know, things will just stay in my mind and I, I, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, it's not worth it to me. <laughs> so <laughs> The, the genre of horror movies, like not, not for me. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, you, because, because you brought this up, do you have, do you have a sports fandom? Well, I mean, I was like raised in the New York sports mm-hmm. stuff, you know, because um, yeah, yeah. both my parents are generally from this area. And uh, yeah, so we're big Mets fans, oh. um, which right now is okay. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. This, um, this is a great year for most them. Most of the time. Yeah. 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 Well, they're, they're slipping a little right now, but we'll see, you know, <laughs> hopefully they can hang on until the end of the season. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Mets and we're, you know, Giants football fans um, and Knicks, like those were the, the three teams that we really followed when I was growing up. Yeah. I got, I got more into, you know, college basketball and stuff when I went to Michigan and that sure. was great to, to have like a big, you know, big 10 team to root for and things like that. And but yeah, but interesting. I mean, I, you didn't I, say college football. Well, college football. Yeah. I mean, I went to the, I went to games and yeah, I guess I, I personally like basketball more than football. Um, I played basketball as a kid and like was really, really into it. I played on like a couple leagues, like multiple leagues at the same time, kind of like I was very intense. Um, but yeah, I, I loved basketball. I had like a big crisis when I had to decide between basketball and youth orchestra. Mm. Um, it was really hard. I think I mentioned that actually earlier. Yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So like that, that was like a big basketball was a big part of my life. So yeah, I was, I'm more into like March Madness versus college football stuff, but I always lose my family's uh, March Madness bracket. <laughs> Actually, I think I won it this year. Actually, nice. I think I did, but um, that was like the first ever, you know, <laughs> um, my brother is like 
very into this as well. And he, but he's, he kind of is a lot better at, at figuring out, you know, tournaments or fantasy football or like things like that. He's really good at that stuff. So, so, you know, it's fun, but I usually lose. <laughs> so. Well, it's not, unfortunately it's not, been or at least good. I don't come in first, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's not been a good uh, 20 plus years to uh, be a Knicks fan, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. I mean, I got to like go to some games as a kid. We would go come down to the city and um, see them play, which was fun, or go to Mets games. And um, yeah, I really, I really love going out to City Field and mm-hmm. just going to a baseball game. It's like, yeah, it's a great summer activity. So yeah, yeah. Did you uh, was Shay still around when you were going? Shea yes, State. yeah. Shay was there, um, and then City Fields opened in you know, maybe 12 years ago or something like that. So I, I remember like going to Shea and then now going to City Field. Um, And actually Burrett is a big Mets fan too. Um, So that, that's been fun. Um, But he's a football wise, he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. Oh, Um, that's a problem. So we have a rivalry as far as football, but we can be friends with baseball. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a good balance, you know, um, but yeah, so that's been fun, but we'll see. I don't know. Usually it's it's kind of miserable this time of year for, for Mets fans. So yeah. Um, yeah. And lately for Giants fans, although who knows, maybe this this is a... Well, we're, we're one week in, you know, that's right. Giants fans. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're good. Yeah, we're good right now. So <laughs> Well, as a, as a Jets fan, all of... I'm just... A, the season's already over before it started. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Are you though? No. <laughs> you have your Jets. Are you? So are you a baseball fan then? Are you Yankees? Fan I'm Yankees. Something? So it's okay. like I'm the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Were you, are oh, you yeah. a hockey fan? Were you into the Islanders or? Yeah. You. Well, so yes, and similar okay. kind of thing where they were bad. They were so abhorrent for so long that I basically like didn't pay any attention to them until like three, four years ago when all of a sudden they were really good again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we just were never into hockey. My parents don't watch hockey. I don't know. My dad is like loves sports of pretty much any kind, but mm-hmm. we just never were into hockey. So, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I think it's it's hard to, for people who didn't who weren't there to kind of understand how much how little like college sports has that much of an impact if you're in New York because there's just so yeah. many pro sports teams. Like you're kind of set, like you know, right? Yeah, we didn't have like a yeah, we didn't have like a family like college like team or college like mm. ties that like for a college like program that we were ever rooting for when I was a kid, really. Yeah. And then you know my brother went to Georgetown. Oh, there you go. Me, so like that was, you know. So then we became like big Georgetown fans, you know. Yeah. Um, which is great. And then like I ended up going to Michigan. So then I was like, okay, well we can we can have these two schools, you know. Um, but yeah, otherwise it was always just like commiserating with the Mets and the Giants <laughs> and, you know, the Knicks. Yeah, no, I, I, I love all that stuff. And, um, I haven't had time really to like watch a lot of the games this mm-hmm. year, but I, you know, when I can, it's, it's a really nice way to just relax and, yeah. um, yeah, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I, I was mad with my siblings cause, 
they told me they're like, this is the greatest Yankees team of all time or, you know, all that stuff. They were very they got a lot of hyperbole. And then I start paying attention to the games in July and they just like right in the toilet for like six weeks. They've righted the ship somewhat, but it was just like. This is the worst, actually. <laughs> they yeah, they were scoring. amazing at the beginning of the season. Yeah. It was amazing what yeah. they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's still there's still potential for a Subway series this okay. year. So yeah. um, that would be pretty cool. And, and you know, not that I would go to any of the games probably, but like living here for that would be, I'm sure it would be fun. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I would love to see the Mets like, you know, pull through and get yeah. to the playoffs at least, you know, yeah. um, they have a good team. So they do. Yeah. 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 It's good stuff. Yeah. Do you have I a also used to play baseball. So oh, I, I okay. never played, you know, I never played football, but I was, I was, I played baseball because mm-hmm. my brother played baseball okay. and, and basketball. So those were my, as a kid, those are my main like sports that I played. Oh, sweet. What was your, what was your basketball game like? Or is it? I don't uh, want. I don't want. To, I don't want to cut your <laughs> your career short here, Colleen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I was a point guard, so um, I was. Yeah, I I enjoyed like that role and just you know being able to like I was you know a lot of assists you know and stuff like that and, and good defense and but I I just really loved like I, I loved the I love basketball. It's a, it's such a fun team sport. You know, I, I like that that it's. I, I love the energy of it and um, the, yeah, the collaborative aspect. Like once I, once I had to stop playing basketball, I ended up playing tennis on my, oh. in my high school team um, because it's it was not like, a collaborative process. For that no, time. exactly. So like, yeah, as, so it, it worked with like my schedule. It was like, okay, tennis practices these days and you can do music on these, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do, I'll do tennis. I had never, really played I think I had gone to like a summer camp or something you know as a kid I took a couple lessons like over the summer and then I joined the tennis team and uh yeah I really instantly was like really missing the team aspect of basketball you know it's um not not at all the same feeling so yeah I stopped playing tennis pretty quickly after Mm -hmm. that I loved basketball you know (laughs) Yeah. Um, and still do, you know, I, sometimes I, I have, I have a ball here and sometimes if I have, you know, a free morning or something, I'll go to the park and shoot some hoops and nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fun. Start, start taking some kids money. No, no. <laughs> Hustling. No, but a uh, told me actually, um, cause you know, we would, he would have the studio over to his house sometimes, mm-hmm. um, for like summer get together or, you know, a holiday party or something, yeah. um, or the end of the year or something like that. So at some point we were playing some basketball in his driveway, like a, a group of us and him, you know, um, as with all things, like he was getting really into it and, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess at some point, I don't remember this at all, but I guess like I figured out what the, what the foul line should be in his driveway, yeah, yeah. like was a good distance, you know? And then like years later, like maybe a year ago, I was chatting with him on the phone and he was shooting hoops, you know, while we're talking. Cause that's like, he's always doing so many things, you know, he's like, I'm going to get my exercise while we talk, you know? Sure. And, um, he told me, he was like, Oh, I still use the foul line that you said, <laughs> <laughs> you know? He's like, this is where I'm shooting my free throws from, you know? Nice. So I thought that was kind of funny because um, I had no recollection of establishing a foul line. He's like, no, you said it was here. So that's where I shoot my free throws oh. from. <laughs> so, well, yeah. 
I, maybe you have a really good elbow jumper, and that's you just were picking your spots and draining it. That could no. be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. I guess I, apparently he does, though. <laughs> so, right, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I would I would happily like play on a team if there was a, an easy way to do that. I haven't found a good way to do it yet, but um, yeah. I haven't gone in a while, but, but, and this is like pre pandemic, but there's a, there's a group of people who play like six in the morning, Tuesday, Thursdays, who are all like, like they work in town and it's, it's exactly like you would, you would love it. Cause it's, it's like, it's people who are just, they just want to get some exercise. They don't take it super seriously, but they're like, but th- we can all play. Like it's like, let's like, mm-hmm. so it's, it's just like a good environment of, and, you know, we're all kind of like in our middle age ish and or something or sometimes there's some younger points, but it's it was it's always it was just like like the best kind of pickup because I've definitely played the pickup where where it's like way too many young people who think they will never get injured. And you're like, that is a disaster. <laughs> yeah, that can be bad. <laughs> that can be bad. Yeah. My brother has been in a few of those, I think, and, and has ended up with some pulled muscles and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. My first, um, I think actually my first like official job was, uh, was like being a, a basketball coach for a, a mm. kid's, you know, basketball camp. Like, a, like it was at the town park, you know, yeah. kind of thing, um, for, for little kids. And I was in high school and it, it was like, I think that was maybe my, like my first like actual job with, you know, um, with like a paycheck and stuff. It was really fun. You know, <laughs> it's like me and a couple other high school people and we were, um, it was kind of beginner level, really early, you know, young elementary level kids, probably may, I don't know, maybe like some up to maybe fourth grade or so I would guess. Yeah. Um, but we would do all these drills and we would do, you know, all these like different practices and exercises and stuff during like the course of the, the program. And then at the end of the class, every time we would have like scrimmages and, um, the other coaches and I would get so in, into it and, you know, we would be very intense and about it, like, okay, we got it, you know, like we got to win and like, you know, in a fun way, but, um, it was like, we were more competing with each other, you know, <laughs> and like, um, the kids were just like having fun, but we were like, no, you have to, to be Brian's group, you know, <laughs> um, like we had this whole kind of separate level of, of, uh, fun that we were having with it in addition to just like coaching the kids, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a good memory that's that's so good yeah wonderful um where is somewhere you have not traveled to that you still haven't gotten that you still want to get to oh so many places (laughs) yeah i mean especially now like after having not traveled too much in the last few years obviously it's like i would love to go to pretty much anywhere you know i mean i would love to go to japan um at some point definitely for, I don't know, a whole variety of reasons. Um, I, some would be amazing to, to get to like Australia or New Zealand someday. That would be amazing. Um, I would love to go somewhere in South America as well. Um, I've been to four continents, I think. So, which is awesome, but I haven't been to South America. So like, that's, I'd love to go, you know, anywhere down there, but I don't know. There's, there's so many places, you know, but I, I love to hike. So mm. anywhere I could go do some hiking would be cool. Um, 
and yeah I mean I'd also really love to go to Ireland um my mom's side of the family is is Irish and we were gonna go as a family actually like in 2020 in the summer um so we ended up canceling that so I'm hoping that we we can find time as a, as a group to go do that trip and we were going to go all over the country but also to like I think we were going to go to the specific town that you know my mom's family is from and um I would really yeah I'd really love to do that I think that sounds really cool and I'd love to just like go hang out and hear some good music played and you know whatever random place you you happen to stumble into and you know um so yeah I'm hoping I hope you get to do that sometime uh when it's when it's safe and things are fully is, you know, hopefully more back to how they were before COVID. So, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. All right. couple more strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. When I was in high school, I did, I had these friends in the percussion program and um, we did these like themed versions of Aftastuba. Oh, okay. You know that piece, yeah, yeah. Um, the Mark Ford trio. Um, <laughs> we played it, but like we 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 like added theatrical elements to it, and we made them like themed. And um, initially, we did it for it was a holiday concert, um, and we made like it was sort of like a Christmassy um, gimmick kind of thing, where like one person dressed up as Santa, and one person was a reindeer, and I was an elf. Um, <laughs> And we had costumes and we, we put choreography into the piece, like beyond what's already in there. And we had props, like we had a carrot for the reindeer guy, you know, um, like the part where you're going around the marimba, we mm -hmm. incorporated like, like I had a carrot and I was like dangling it in front of the guy who was playing the reindeer. And, you know, we made like a whole thing about it. Um, there was a part where I like stole Santa's hat and I was like, I was just like the kind of this like mischievous elf, you know, um, and so that was like pretty goofy, you know, <laughs> we were, we, we were very into it. Um, and I stand by it. I think it was awesome, you know, but, but our, our plan was just like to do that. And then, um, for some reason we, we did that. And then like, there were a couple other concerts we got asked to like play the piece again, but it, we couldn't do it, the Christmas thing anymore. Cause it was like months later. Mm -hmm. And so we had to come up with like other versions. So I remember there was one that was sort of patriotic. I don't know why it was paid, you know, but, um, we had, I was the statue of Liberty <laughs> and, uh, we had Abe Lincoln and maybe uncle Sam. I don't remember like who honestly <laughs> the third person was. Um, but I remember that like, I, they, you know, these are like two of my closest friends in high school. Um, we just, we worked really hard on this, you know, but we decided I would be the Statue of Liberty and they like carted me in on like a, on like a flatbed, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I was like standing right. there in like the pose, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, uh, <laughs> they like picked me up and put me in front of the room. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's like, yeah. So there was that one. And then we did, we did one where it was like, they were like friends and I was like the annoying little sister or something. And it was something about guitar hero. Like there was, a, we had, there was like dialogue involved. Okay. Like, I don't know. We really kind of went off the deep end, I think with <laughs> um, theming after Stuba. So yeah. Um, but it was fun, you know, that was like, it's one of the, yeah. One of my earliest, like super fun percussion ensemble experiences, just um, making something that was, yeah, that just made us laugh, 
Um, and that just made people like people loved it, you know, it's a, it's yeah. a fun piece and we just sort of put our own weird stamp on it and, you know, <laughs> it was great. That's, that's awesome. So maybe a little embarrassing, but mostly great, you know? No, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And I was thinking, yeah, I, when you said themed, I was like, I, I don't know why I immediately went to like Jurassic park or something, but I was just imagining yeah. like, one of you is like in a, in one of those, uh, you know, full out dinosaur costumes. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah, we just, we just, yeah, yeah. We just didn't have the budget for that. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's the only reason we didn't do it. <laughs> See, this is another. This is so, a reason to get that back up because just for for the magic. Yeah, I know. I mean, we gotta re, we gotta reunite. It's it's gotta be a tour or something. Yes. Yeah. Where you just you only play one piece and you play it like five times on the concert. Right. Yes. <laughs> but they're all different themes. Absolutely. Um, totally possible. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a terrible right. idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you should do is you, you should ask like. So, or, or third coast or like one of these major groups when yeah. they, or if they want to, if they want an opener. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I think this would really, yeah, this would really be a good fit. I think for the third coast, you know, um, yeah, the third coast aesthetic, I think really fits this. Uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Just kidding. <laughs> all right all right colleen last question what one piece of art could be music movies books podcast youtube clip theater visual art poetry anything has impacted you the most recently i guess sort of the easy the easy answer but i just started playing on phantom of the opera oh Um, like uh yesterday was my first show actually (laughs) um so i've i've been yeah i've been in the the, like in the process of um getting started on the show you know for the last couple weeks and spending a lot of time obviously with the music and um the show in general just trying to really get to know it and be prepared so um that's you know really the, the main thing i've been like really spending all my energy like artistically um trying to pick apart and and really get to understand and um actually went into the whole process like not having um I know some people like love phantom and like are just you know um it's obviously a staple on Broadway and um some people have this like really deep connection to it and I was not that at all Mm -hmm. um I just remember being pretty scared by the, the whole idea of it as a kid um, again, like with my horror movies thing, it's not really my, my thing. I'm not really like into stuff that spooks you out. And there's sure. definitely things in Phantom that are, that are, you know, jarring. And, yeah. um, so I kind of went into the process going like, okay, let me figure out like, what is it about this that people like so much, you know, because it's, it's not the kind of story that you would expect to be, to have the kind of popularity that it has, you know? Like it's the longest running show on Broadway. It's been there almost 35 years. You know, it's like no other show has has reached that level yet. And so it's it's kind of like, but it's not it's not the kind of story that you would think is massively popular, right? It's like kind of a spooky story about, you know, like people in an opera company, you know, in the late 1800s yeah. who are like putting on all these old operas and it's it has murder and it has all these like different kind of dark elements to it and 
so it's not, you know, I was just kind of wondering like, why, why do people like this so much? Right. Sure. And like musically, obviously there's great musical numbers that people know generally. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is also opera and that's like not <laughs> typically a genre that appeals to the masses anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I was sort of looking at it through that lens of like, I want to learn the percussion book and do a good job with that. But I also really wanted to kind of dig into figuring out the, the piece of art as a whole, the show. Um, and it's been really, it's been really awesome to, to kind of figure it out, you know? Um, and I've, I've gotten to, like, I went in and, and sat in and watched the show a couple of times from the pit. Um, so I, I don't know what's happening on stage really, but you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> see, yeah. like watching the musicians. Um, yeah. And so I got to like do that a couple of times and there's different, you know, I get to hear different people sing the roles and there's actually multiple conductors on Phantom as well. So it changes quite a bit actually, depending on who's uh, conducting. And that was just a really cool process to, to do that. And then to spend my time like on my own, just listening to all my recordings and, and I watched the movie to, you know, kind of look into it that way. And um, I read a lot about the show and, um, yeah, it's been like, I, I definitely understand it a lot more now at why people love the show. And um, it's it's like sitting in the pit is such a different experience from hearing the recording. Obviously, you can hear all the details um, so much better in, in the instrumental parts that you can't necessarily hear all of it um, with the voices being as um, prominent as they are in the mix, you know. Um, so it's like beautiful. And the orchestra itself sounds so good like they're it's such a great group of players so it's really really beautiful um experience that they create every time and it's like oh yeah okay that's why you know (laughs) but it's so it's really powerful the guy who's playing phantom right now is totally incredible he's like you never know what he's gonna do his voice like changes instantly and all these different timbres um and it's really yeah it's really gripping and like the best way you know that's been a cool moment for me to sort of figure out. Um, yeah. Like, like the larger question of like, what is it about this, this piece of art that's so compelling for people? Um, and to sort of like feel, I feel a lot more compelled by it personally now having spent the time with it. Um, and, you know, gotten over the initial kind of just, uh, feeling I had about it, which is like, oh, there's this, like, all I remember is like, we, we, I saw it as a kid. I was really little, um, like elementary school, pretty young. And I remember we saw the, the tour, I think, um, I guess, cause it was up in Albany. And uh, I, all I remember the whole thing is just the chandelier moment. Oh yeah. You know, and, and I was just so scared by that, you know? <laughs> and um I mean, that just like means they did a really good job of it, you know, like, um, but that was my like thing. I was like, oh, I can't, like Phantom's too creepy for me because I, all I could remember is this, this terrifying chandelier thing. And I, I think I didn't like the idea that there was like this musical genius person who loved music so much, who could, was also like such a kind of a warped person and, and could go to all these like really dark lengths, you know because like, and have this like passion for music at the same time. Like, I think that felt kind of, it's just scary for me because I already like really loved music and I, I don't know, I just felt like weird about that. So um, this is like kind of really going off topic of your question, I think, but. No, it's great. Um, I'm enjoying all the yeah. facets. Um, but it's been, I mean, that's just been like, 
and a broader scale too. It's been, it's been helpful to, to sort of think of things in a, in a bigger picture as far as like this and just what, what that experience for me means, you know, for other people and projects that I might do, or, um, it's been, it's been cool to just like look at something in that way and, um, find a way into it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, I get it, you know, when the show starts and the organ comes in for the first time, it's like pretty amazing, you know, <laughs> like the whole pit just shakes, you know, Yeah, it's, uh, it's very powerful. So it's, yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, it's a very well-told story and, uh, it brings the audience in in a, in a really, really effective way. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's been, that's, that's definitely been uh, inspiring for me lately. To me, it's the, spe- the spectacle. I- I've seen it once, but I-, I mean, I saw it when I was in college and I mm-hmm. remember the guy that I went with, we just looked at each other after the first act and we're just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm like, I know, I know, you know, like, I mean, the music was good too, but it was like the, the visual was mind blowing. Yeah, I know. I, I would love to like get out of the pit and see it from, you know, see it from the audience um, at some point. Cause I, you know, I, I, when you go into the theater to, to go down to the pit, you have to walk past some of the costumes and, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes I'll see like the people, getting dressed in their costumes and whatever. It's a, like, I see it part of it, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I would love to just like see the whole staircase that they have for masquerade. And, yeah. um, but yeah, musically, it's just like, like I said, like all these details that I definitely didn't know before, but, but it's a really, really well composed score. It has, there's all these motifs that um, carry through and it's like in a lot of ways it's a very kind of traditional opera yeah. um, perspective on like the writing, which is really cool. Um, and it's just, it's like beautiful. The orchestrations are so great. There's like these really high horn notes that mm-hmm. people nail every single night, which is amazing, you yeah. know, um, like stratospheric above the staff kind of horn writing, which is really cool. And the percussionists are right behind the horns. So it's like when they're playing, it's kind of like, that's pretty much all you can hear, you know, but it's great, you know, it's like this big moments and there's cool sound effect things happening all over the place and the woodwinds and the, you know, violin and the harp and stuff like that so um yeah I've definitely I've definitely like uh really just it's been really cool to spend the time figuring it out and and just understanding it and you know the percussion book is is really fun it's got mm. all sorts of uh you know there's big you know there's all these big moments in Phantom like you said it's a spectacle so there's all these like huge giant stretchy rubato moments with big cymbal crashes and you know it's like the the kind of stuff you don't get to play a lot in orchestral repertoire you know and it's like all over the show so (laughs) um it's cool you know it's it's definitely fun to like be a part of those that that kind of really really intense um experience that people are gonna remember when they they go to a show like that you know yeah the kind of I was thinking because yeah the larger moments like you're saying there's a lot of that the intricate stuff the thing actually that stood out is the end of music of the night though that chord progression after when he mm-hmm. when the when he hits the last note and then it like cycles in this weird way but still lands back on tonic and I just remember being like oh, what how who yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's really amazing and those. Um, that happens a couple times in the show. That's some yeah. harmonic movement. And there's like, I think three 
times basically that that happens. In the first two, there's several crashes with each of those, um, which is like one of the hardest things. It's like triple piano symbols. It's like, you know, it should be an excerpt, like honestly, right. you know, it's um, it's triple piano, like with the strings and everybody's sneaking in and they're all, at least in our pit, it's like everybody's on the, the other side of this, the pit, you know, so you're not physically close. And um, it's the, the placement of it with the conductors is so wild, you know, it's like one of those things where the conductor will like gesture and it's like a full, yeah. three seconds maybe before the sound happens you know it's like it's very um it's very scary at least you know for me right now being like just starting out with and haven't done it for that many times you know so um that's definitely one of the harder moments in the book it's just like these really you have to just time it perfectly they, they, they have to be so quiet and so you know and it's like like you said like it's such a magical moment on the stage yeah. You can't mess it up, you know. It's like it'd be the worst thing ever. It was just like crash, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it'd be the worst thing ever. Like, <laughs> you're just holding, you know, the symbols, like, like can't even imagine. So you're just like waiting, and it's like I'm just trying to tell myself, like, nope, like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's longer than than the longer that you think it's going to be. Like it's just infinitely after the downbeat, you know. It's like like those seconds feel like the longest thing in the world, you know. But um, it's cool to like get that, that experience. Like that you spend time trying to learn that stuff in college, like learn those techniques and, you know, you play the excerpts and you don't actually get to like do that very much. You know, there's only a few places in orchestral repertoire that you would actually do that. So um, yeah, getting to do that kind of stuff. And then um, there's all kinds of, yeah, there's all, it's, it's like an interesting mix of the kind of the Broadway, approach and then this just straight up orchestral approach to playing, I guess, in that book. So yeah. um, that's been like a really fun challenge to work on as well yeah. from like a percussion perspective, you know? Yeah. That's or even like with Masquerade, it's like you're playing the kick drum and the cymbals is mm -hmm. that's one player doing yeah. that. So um, just like the consistency of that and the timing and like, you know, it's uh, that's, that's cool too. It's like a cool challenge as well. You don't, I mean, you never do that in an orchestral repertoire. You're never playing kick drum and crash cymbals together. So, um, yeah. Where you need to have like all the cymbal crashes be the same exact same timbre, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Such a total blast getting the chat with Colleen on these past two episodes. I wish her the best of luck as she gets to play for Phantom of the Opera on this critical end juncture for that show, along with all of her other teaching and performing duties. And, gotta be honest, it would be pretty cool to have another Subway series in Major League Baseball. Because that would mean that my New York Yankees would have won the pennant. So yeah, let's do this. All right, this week's rave is a classic jazz album. This might be the first time I've done a rave about that. The album is Thelonious Monk Plays Duke Ellington from 1955. It's rare that I would discuss a book that I haven't finished yet, but I'm about halfway through Robin D.G. Kelly's long biography of jazz pianist Thelonious Monk, and I'm quite enjoying it. 
as I've been reading about this influential artist, I've been putting together a playlist on Spotify of the works discussed in the book. I mean, if, if I've got the monthly membership, I might as well put it to use. As I was traveling this past weekend to and from Auburn, I read quite a lot of the book and came across Monk's album of covers of Ellington's tunes and started listening on Spotify. I enjoyed learning that Thelonious Monk felt like he had done great work on this album and felt very proud of it. And I really enjoyed the album. And just so you know, this is Thelonious Monk on piano, Oscar Pettiford on bass, and Kenny Clark on drums. For the most part, I'm fairly familiar with Duke Ellington's most famous tunes, and some of those are covered on this album. Mood Indigo, Caravan, It Don't Mean a Thing, Sophisticated Lady, Solitude, among others. And maybe it was the stability of the Duke's songwriting style that works so well with Monk's angular, chromatic style and extended chord voicings that were so influential to so many in bebop that make this album work. And more so than a lot of the other music I've been listening to in this Thelonious Monk playlist that I've put together. Aside from that, what's also cool is how Monk's playing on this is a combination of sparse and speedy. He's giving you moments where you can sense that he can be as acrobatic and aggressive as an Earl Hines or a James P. Johnson were on piano. But he frequently takes the path of space and really laying into dissonance and chromaticism. It's a wonderful combination that I can't recommend enough. On whatever is your favorite streaming service, check out Thelonious Monk plays Duke Ellington. You should enjoy. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.